If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning in our lesson, Romans chapter 6. I want to be honest with you all. I am encouraged uh, lately. Uh, we've, I think, been doing a lot of good things. I think things have been going really well here at Maryville lately. I think uh, when you look at our like, attendance numbers, things have been getting a lot better this year as the year's been going on. I think if you look at some of the things that we are involved in, uh, we have a group right now who's doing mission work in Albania and doing a wonderful job there. Uh, we have uh, just finished up the month of June, which was pretty, was kind of a busy month in June. We had a summer series going on here that was well attended. We had a VBS, and I want to offer a word of thanks and appreciation to all of those who... Uh, sacrificed their time and efforts and mental energy into uh, to VBS. Uh, Hillary did a wonderful job uh, organizing that and all of the help that she was able to get. Uh, like There were a lot of people who contributed and helped, whether it was teaching classes, whether it was helping design things, whether it was bringing kids from class to class. Uh, there was a lot of participation, and that's always exciting to see people coming here together to, to engage in something like that. We had our day of prayer and fasting uh, last week that I know a lot of people engaged in, and, and I'm uh, thankful for and hopeful for it. When I, when I look at what's going on here at Maryville, it seems like a lot of things are taking place and a lot of things are going really well. A lot of people are, are getting involved and growing and that's exciting for me. Something I've also noticed is we've had a good number of baptisms this year. In fact, within the last uh, about two weeks or so, we've had three and uh, I hope that that continues. Uh, but one thing that strikes me is as you uh, do have baptisms and you do have people who uh, give their life to Christ through baptism, it's probably helpful from time to time for every one of us here to take a moment and to reflect and to remember and to consider the decision that we made when we were baptized and what that means for us. Not just necessarily what it meant in that moment, but what it continues to mean for us day by day. There are passages in the Bible that encourage people to be baptized. But most of the discussion in the Bible, and this is interesting, I think, most of the time it's brought up, it's not necessarily an encouragement to be baptized. It's more of a reminder of what happened when you were baptized. Christians are people who have been baptized. And when Paul's writing his letters to the churches and he starts talking about baptism, he's talking to people who have already been baptized, but he's reminding them of what that means in your life. Years later, what does that still mean for you? And I think it's helpful for us from time to time to take a few moments and to remember the commitment that we made and what that means for us. It's like, it's like remembering your wedding day. You know? What does that mean for you? It changed things for you. It took you from the life of, uh, that you used to have, maybe the life of a single person, to now the life of someone who is committed to another person for the rest of your life. It, there's a change that took place there. And that should impact the way that you think and the way that you live from that day forward. Baptism, in, in, for Romans 6, this is really helpful to understand, baptism is an identity change. It's a change of allegiance. It's a change of who you are that manifests itself in a new way of life. We, we've talked about uh, the 4th of July a little bit and, you know, our independence from, from England. Uh, a change took place there. You know, if I were to stand up here and say, you know, long live King George, you'd look at me funny because, because there's a change that took place. Uh, to look back on our pre-independence or your life before you were married, you're looking at a, a different you, a different life that you lived, a different identity for who you were. And Paul, I think, very much wants us, when we look at our baptism, 
to look at the life that we're living now as a new identity, a new kind of life. And that should help us as we encounter some of the conflicts and the struggles that we face in the world around us. This lesson is not necessarily a call to be baptized, although if there's anyone in here who's not been baptized, why don't you just go ahead and do that this morning? You are invited to do that this morning. Consider it. Make that pledge. Make that plunge and give, life your, uh, give Christ your life. But more than that, it's a reminder, hopefully, to everyone in here who has been baptized to look back on that decision you made and to remember the hope that you have uh, because of it. Remember the hope that comes through your walk with Christ. Um, Romans chapter 6 begins with a question. It begins with uh, a question that seemingly has a very obvious answer. But Paul has just said something that could perhaps create confusion. If you look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5, like right at the end of chapter 5, Paul says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But then notice this phrase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like if you think, you're, if you think the sin of Israel was bad, well, God's grace was even greater. As sin rises and you think, oh no, there's no hope, you could never and should never discount the amazing abundance of the grace of God. As sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Sin never beats grace. Sin's not more powerful than grace. Sin won't overpower grace or or, uh, come in more abundance than grace. God's grace is limitless. And that's a really, really wonderful thing to remember, all right? But if you say that, There's the temptation that could arise to think, okay, well, if grace always beats sin, and if grace is always more abundant than sin is, then if I sin five times, I get six graces, you know, (laughs) or or like the more that I sin, the more grace that I get. So ultimately, sin just must not be the biggest deal to a God of grace, because to a God of grace, he can always cover it. To a God of grace, he's always more powerful than sin. So, so what I do if I sin is get grace showered upon me. So in essence, the more I sin, the more grace I get. That's a pretty cool thing. Uh, so maybe law, maybe, um, maybe slavery to like doing all of those things, minutia that God wants me to do, just isn't that important. And rather, it's important that I enjoy life and I experience freedom and I rejoice in grace. And if I sin, who cares? Because there's grace for that. And, and I can live a better and happy and more full life doing as I please and doing uh, and basking in the goodness of God's grace. And so there's the temptation to, I guess, become uh, less obedient to the will of God as we Thank God and bask in the radiance of his grace. And Paul wants to address that head on with a big fat no, don't do that. Uh, That is not okay. That's never okay. That is absolutely the wrong idea to have about sin and grace. Sin and grace have a relationship, but it's not that. And so when you look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, that's the question he starts off with. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Or look, uh, look at verse 15. Uh, Verse 15 in chapter 6, he'll ask a similar type of question. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
In both times, he's going to give one of the strongest negations you could possibly give. Uh, my Bible translates it as, may it never be. But it's, I mean, it is an emphatic, strong, profound, all caps, exclamation point, no, absolutely not. Not in a million years, don't ever begin to think like that. Don't think for a moment that grace lessens the magnitude of sin. Don't think that sin's not all that bad because grace is all right. As a matter of fact, a proper understanding of the relationship of grace and sin should, instead of lessening sin, we should, the more we appreciate the gravity and the magnitude and the depth and the pain and the death that comes from sin, love the grace of God even more and try to get sin out of our lives even more. Like, grace should motivate us to sin less not to think, ah, sin's not that big of a deal. And I've heard it. Like, I haven't heard people literally walk around saying what Paul writes here is, oh, I can sin so that I can have grace. But I've heard that type of language and thinking, like of people who are doing something that they know is wrong, and rather than choosing repentance, they say, well, that's what God's grace is for. And I think Paul's warning against that type of attitude. The type of attitude that says, well, look, I know this isn't the right thing to do, but God is graceful, and, and, I, and so I'm going to do it, but I'm going to trust in God's grace. And Paul is saying, you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten what you're called to be when that happens. You have forgotten what your baptism, that inauguration, that initiation into the Christ family of what that was all about. And so in order to answer this question, he's not just going to give a big emphatic no. He's then going to remind them, of when you were baptized, you made an agreement, a commitment, a change of allegiance and loyalty and identity to a new way of life. It, is, it should be completely out of character for you to want to go back to that way of life. It would be like Israel rejoicing in their homes of the promised land, sitting there thinking, I should go obey Pharaoh. Uh, because Pharaoh was your slave master and you've been freed from him. Why would you want to go back to him? That happened though, right? Like, you can read of times when, in the wilderness, they wanted to go back to Pharaoh. Or there were times when, like, Babylon was making them nervous. So they thought, hey, maybe we can reach out to Pharaoh for help. And there was temptation in the life of Israel to go back to Egypt, to go back and be subservient to Egypt. And I'm pretty certain there's going to be temptation in our lives from time to time to go back to that pre-Christian way of life, to go back to being who we were before we were baptized. You see that in marriages. Someone, I'm married now, I'm going to live for this person. But then what happens when, when adultery is committed? Or what happens when someone begins to neglect their family to do the things that they used to always love doing that maybe sometimes having family and children and responsibilities you don't have the time for anymore. You begin to neglect your family to go back to that way of life. Those are problems. Whether you're wanting to go back to slavery, whether you're wanting to go back to life without your family, whether you're wanting to long live King George, what you're doing is you're going back to a former way of life that you have been freed from to where now you can live in the glow of God's grace and goodness. And what Paul is saying is baptism is that moment where you died to that former way and you're becoming a new self, a new person with a new identity in Christ. It, you're forgetting who you are when you start saying, oh, I can sin because of God's grace. You're, you're wanting to travel backwards, and that's never the direction that Christ is calling us to go. And so, as we uh, go through Romans 6, 
I think it's important to remember he's calling us to be a changed person with a changed mindset, and he's going to use baptism as, as the way of doing that. So chapter 6 and verse 2 says, May it never be, for how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? I mean, that's, that's really strong language. I've just used a bunch of language like marriage and slavery and some of these things where dreaming about going back to it, but he actually uses the language of death. It's like a person who has been raised from the dead, looking back at their rotting corpse and thinking, hmm, that'd be nice. Uh, I might want to go back. He, he's saying, you've died to sin. Why would you want to go back to the state of death? Why would you want to go back to that which brings about death and decay and, and, and terror in your life? Verse 3, this is how he describes that death to sin. For do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we also might walk in newness of life. One of the, one of the uh, images that's regularly used of baptism in the New Testament is that of, of the Exodus story. Um, so you, you can go to like 1 Corinthians 10, and you can see that uh, Paul makes parallels between the children of Israel crossing through the Red Sea and our baptized. He actually says they were baptized into the sea and into Moses. Like we are baptized into uh, the water and into Christ. Uh, like we enter into this relationship with Christ through baptism. And he's saying that that's that, that similar to what happened with the children of Israel in, in the wilderness. They were in slavery in Egypt. They left that slavery through the water. They went through the wilderness before entering into the promised land. And that journey is a cyclical journey. And it's a journey that we even find ourselves on. Remember Jesus. Jesus uh, had, you know, an evil king who tried to kill him as a child, just like Pharaoh did with the, the children of Israel. Jesus fled down to Egypt. He came back. He went through the water of baptism in the Jordan River. Right after that, he entered the wilderness for 40 days, not years, but 40 days. Uh, he was tempted just like the children of Israel were, only where they failed in those temptations, he succeeded in those temptations. Jesus then went up on a mountain and began to, uh, to teach the people. He, like, it's a retelling of the Exodus story with Jesus in the place of Moses. But notice that baptism in that story of Jesus is right there where the Red Sea is. Some people, and I'm, I'm unconvinced uh, entirely, but I think it's interesting to note, and that's why I'm going to mention it. You, you think about it yourselves as you read the Romans. Some people see a retelling of that Exodus story taking place through the pages of Romans. If it's there, it's very subtle. But here's basically what they see. If you go to Romans chapter 4, you have uh, Abraham, and that would be kind of like the call of Abraham back in Genesis. So like in Romans chapter 4 and uh, verse 1, what shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then it actually quotes from Genesis, the, this call of Abraham. And so it's like that's the call of Abraham. Then when you get to chapter 5 of Romans, you have this Jesus-Adam uh, parallel contrast that takes place where Adam brought sin and death into the world, but Jesus brings uh, forgiveness and, and salvation into the world. And through one man entered condemnation, through another man justification and righteousness. And, and, and you have this, this parallel taking place there, but one of the major themes of that is the sin that has held us captive. And, and, and the sin that has been brought into this world. And that all have sinned. Like when you get to chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, death spread to all men because all sinned. 
And so that would be kind of representative of Egyptian slavery, of the death and the sin that we were enslaved to is Romans chapter 5. And then you get to Romans chapter 6, and you have the exodus out of that, and you have the, the passing through the Red Sea. You have baptism as a primary topic in Romans chapter 6, which leads you to Romans chapter 7, where the law becomes the primary topic of conversation. Uh, when, you, when you read through uh, the exodus story, that's after they go through the, the Red Sea, and Moses goes up on Sinai, and they get the law. You have the law being discussed there, and, and you have uh, the, the battle that Paul often felt himself having with the law. Uh, you can, you know, in chapter uh, 7 of verse 14, uh, Paul begins to describe the ongoing struggle of obedience to the law while not doing the things that you want to do, but finding yourself in them. Uh, and that's going to kind of symbolize Israel's battle with the law and how they often struggled with it. And then you get to Romans chapter 8, and you have uh, the whole through the Spirit of God idea of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and resurrection and redemption of all mankind. And that would be like the promised land. And so all of that is a way of saying there are people who read Romans as kind of echoing the story of the Exodus narrative from or the, the Old Testament narrative from the call of Abraham through Egyptian slavery, through the crossing of the Red Sea, to the receiving of the law, to the struggle with the law, to the promised land, and to new creation, and all of that. And, and there might be something there. It's something to, to consider. But as you look at that, and you remember that often in the Bible, crossing through the Red Sea and leaving Egypt behind and pressing forward to the promised land is a picture of baptism, I think you can see some interesting things there when Paul, in Romans chapter 6, begins to ask questions like, should we sin so that grace may abound? And he's saying, no, you already passed through the Red Sea. You can't go back to the other side. <laughs> like you already, you already were baptized. You're something new now. Don't try to travel back into the death that held you captive beforehand. Because baptism and what God does for you in baptism, it gives you hope. It gives you hope that cannot be found elsewhere. It gives you hope uh, that is found in Christ because you're baptized into Christ. And, and that's not something that you should reject or neglect or forget about as time passes on. But you should live in that hope and revel in that hope. When we talk about the things that we have hope of through baptism, we have hope of the resurrection through baptism in Romans chapter 6. As you read through it... Um, so one thing, we'll start in verse 4, and we'll read a little bit, but one thing that's important to notice, uh, and I often hear this when people talk about the symbolism between the death of Jesus, his burial, and his resurrection, and baptism, where we die to sin, we're buried with Christ, and we're raised up with him. And a lot of times people will quote Romans chapter 6 for that. I think that's absolutely an accurate picture of, of what the Bible, uh, of an illustration the Bible uses, of our baptism being a burial with Christ and being raised up with Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, for example, has a really clear image of that. that it says we are buried with Christ, we are raised up with Christ. Romans chapter 6 is a little less clear than that on the, the final part, the raised up with Christ part. Something we've talked about before a little bit is when we think about eschatology, like the end of times. We find ourselves in what sometimes is called like an already not yet eschatology. Basically, the kingdom of God is already here, but there's still the fullness of it that we're waiting for in the final day. Um, are we raised up with Christ? 
Yes, I mean Romans, uh, or I mean uh, Colossians two very clearly says we've been raised up with Christ. If you've been raised up with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Like that, that's important to know. But have we been fully raised from the dead in the way that we're longing to on that final day? Well, no. There's there's still a resurrection we're looking forward to. We've we've been raised in one way, but we still have hope. Have we been saved? Yes. Yes, we've been saved, but Paul will still talk about us being saved from the wrath of God in the future. Like, salvation is something we have already, but it's also something that we're looking forward to, because it's not yet fully realized in its absolute sense. The kingdom of God, resurrection. There are a lot of topics like that that deal with the end, that we're already experiencing now, but yet we're longing for a day when we experience to the max in the day to come. All of that is to say, in Romans chapter 6, we clearly die to sin in baptism and are buried with Christ. But when he talks about resurrection, he doesn't specifically say that we've been raised up with Christ. Rather, he, he changes his tenses to mean we died with Christ and we were buried with Christ and we will live with Christ or we shall live with Christ. Um, and it's something that gives us hope of a future life with Christ that in some sense we experience now, but we also live our life from day to day longing for the fullness of it as it will come. So look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, and notice how he doesn't just clearly say you were buried with Christ and raised up with Christ. He says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Christ was raised from the dead, and we might walk in a newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's a little bit different than saying that that's exactly what happened already. It's like we've started the process, and we're looking forward to finishing it with Christ. We are with Christ in death and in burial, and we are living a new life, longing to live with him uh, in, in the resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's freedom from slavery. Like the slave self that was a slave to sin was crucified, and now you live a new life freed from that sin. Verse 7, for he who died is freed from sin. But then verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. That's a hope of something to come. We believe we shall live with him. And so in baptism, you have hope, not just now, of new life with Christ, but you also have hope that a day will come when you will live with Christ in the fullest sense possible. And if that's where you are, and if that's how you're living, and if you're living into that hope day after day, does it make any sense at all to say, so I'm just going to go back to my pre-crucified self and begin living a life of sin as it pleases me and as it makes things easier in my life? No. Because not only does baptism give us hope of resurrection, baptism gives us hope of freedom Hope of freedom from slavery. But the thing that's fascinating about the way that, that Paul writes about freedom from slavery is he doesn't say you are freed from sin to now live however you please. Freedom in Paul's mind means transitioning from a harsh, cruel slave master 
to one who loves you and gives you righteousness and forgiveness and grace. Because you're still a slave in Paul's illustration here. What Paul goes on to say as, as you continue to read, look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 14. He says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Now that's an interesting phrase. And I think there is a misunderstanding that sometimes pops up as people study Romans, uh, where people might want to think that works and obedience mean the same thing. Works and obedience in Romans are not used the same way at all. Works are actually like wrong for the most part in Romans. Almost everything that says about works, it not only tells you that works don't save you, it tells you not to do them something. You know, the one who works, to him it is credited as debt, is, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. So like works aren't a good thing, but obedience in Romans is always a good thing. Obedience is something deeply connected to faith. In Romans, faith results in righteousness. But you know what else results in righteousness? What he says right there, right at the end of verse 16, of obedience resulting in righteousness. Obedience is the life of faith come to fruition. Like, obedience is what faith produces in the life of someone who's listening to God. Obedience is, uh, is the life that we are called to have in Christ. What you do matters. What you do in Christ matters. And that's why you don't go back to that life of sin. You actually become a slave to obedience now. And that results in righteousness. It's not because of something that you earn, or it's not that God has weighed up all of your, you know, obedient acts and said, okay, he's reached this number, he can enter into heaven. That's not it at all. But because of the grace of God, we now live lives that manifest the goodness of Christ, that show the world around us the goodness of Christ. We become slaves to a new kind of life. And that new slavery, Paul calls freedom. We tend to think of freedom as getting to do whatever I want. And that's not the way Paul talks about freedom. Uh, that is actually the bondage of sin. And it leads to further lawlessness and greater sin and more darkness and more death. But freedom from that to live the life that Christ has called us to live, is, it's freedom indeed. I mean, that's what true freedom actually is. There are times that my children, for example, might not want to listen to me. As strange as that sounds, they sometimes want to do their own things. And one of the reasons that I don't let them do that is because I love them. And I know that by learning the things that I'm trying to teach you now, and by doing the things that I'm trying to instill in you now, it's going to give you a better life. You might in the moment think, well, eating, you know, Skittles for dinner is, uh, is that's, what, that's what freedom is, and that will make me happy. And, you know, I could probably be talked into it sometimes. But, but over the long haul, what you realize is having complete lawlessness and having just complete uh, uh, autonomy apart from God, it's not the type of thing that will bring you a fuller, richer, greater life. It's the type of thing that will bring about pain, misery, hardship, sin, and death. Christ is offering a different way, and it's still, you still have a master, but it's a master who loves you. It's a master you get to choose, and it's a master who results, who's, 
who gives you a life of righteousness, grace, and forgiveness. And so as you read through, uh, he says in verse 19, He's been using a bunch of like illustrations. He says, I speak in human terms uh, because of the weakness of your flesh. Basically, like all of these are just try different illustrations, whether it's the Exodus imagery or death on a cross imagery or slavery imagery, like or, or presenting your members, like all of these different uh, things. They're illustrations that Paul's using to try to make a point. But he says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. When you choose, when that transition happens and God becomes the master of your life, it leads to obedience, it leads to righteousness, it leads to sanctification. That's the, that's the path of freedom that is being offered that you have and that we can remember as we look back on our baptism. And finally, baptism not only gives us a new kind of freedom, a redefined freedom, a freedom to God and to, to be his slaves, um, we end up finding also that we have a gift in store for us. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 22 and 23 says, But now, having been freed from God, and, uh, freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, you have obedience, you have righteousness, you have sanctification, you have eternal life. And he says that's actually a free gift that's given to his, to all of those who are in his family. One thing about slavery in the ancient Roman world, and, and when you talk about that, it's very difficult for us to remove ourselves from the modern, not modern, but, but semi-modern American history of slavery. Um, when you're talking about like Roman slavery, there were some differences, but one of them is you become part of the household. Like when you become a slave of a new master, you are part of that household. And I think what this is saying is you have gone from the household of sin to now being welcomed into the household of God. And there's a gift for you there. There is righteousness found there. There is sanctification, but there's also the free gift of eternal life. And it doesn't come from what you have earned. You know, like a, the wages are what you've earned. The wages are what, a, what a, the slave in the ancient Roman world would get for, you know, doing all the tasks that he's been assigned to do. And when God looks at our wages, we didn't earn eternal life. Uh, we earned death. But God's not rewarding us based on our wages, He's rewarding us based on his grace and his gift, and that is eternal life. So in baptism, we transition households. We become part of God's household. We crucify the old self and become alive to the new self. In baptism, we have a hope of life now, but also resurrection life to come in the freedom with a God who gives us eternal life. It's a new identity. So we never want to go back to that former way of life where all of that is lost, but we're called to something greater and called to something newer. Baptism is a message of hope. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of freedom, and it's a message of intimacy with God now and forever. So remember that as you walk through your life. And again, if there is anyone here who does want to be baptized this morning, don't delay and don't wait. We can talk about it further. We can study. We can answer any questions you have. Uh, you can go meet with some of our elders in the library in the back, or you can come and sit on the front row. But if you have the need, we want to be able to help you. If you would, please come while we stand and as we sing.